There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia swathed through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's the rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to Climactic. My name is Mark and I'm publisher of the Climactic Collective, the Trans-Tasman Podcast Network, by and for the climate communities of Australia and New Zealand. This week... Oh boy, this week. It's the release week for the physical sciences part of the 6th IPCC report. It's been a big week for a lot of people in the climate community. I'm sure you've all read headlines, probably articles. You might have even read a bit of the report yourself. We're all coming to terms with confirmation that what we feared and we know, it's reality. The idea of a 1.5C degree hotter world by 2030. So it's a good time to talk about our feelings, how to cope with eco-anxiety, and how to learn to live with climate change. That's the title of a new book by Blanche Verley, friend of the show and climate academic. And it's my privilege to bring you an episode of Talking in This Climate Now, talking is a very special kind of show. It's a logistical feat all by itself. And it's hard enough in this day and age to organize a Zoom call with four or five friends, much less convince them all to record a podcast. And then for that podcast to turn out this good is is a minor miracle. I won't go ahead and reintroduce talking in this climate and describe what it is, because there's an intro that does that very well. But I will just say that this is the 10th episode of Talking in This Climate, and I am in awe of this team, and I'm so proud and happy for them to reach this milestone of double digits. I remember joking in the early days when they were just getting started that you could only call yourself a podcast when you'd reached double digits, and here they are. Through multiple lockdowns, through only remote recordings, they've persevered, and the show's really come into its own. So I just want to take a moment to say congratulations to Tim and Zoe, Amelia and Fani, Rosie and Ewan. And if I've missed anyone there, apologies, but you guys are like the Brady Bunch of a podcast. So congratulations on number 10. I couldn't be happier to celebrate this milestone with you. And now let me leave you with this excellent episode to help us all cope with our feelings this week. It's a great one to share with friends and family. And thank you to Zoe and Blanche this week particularly for this perspective. Welcome to Talking in This Climate, a series where we discuss the different aspects of talking about climate change and environmental issues. We're a mix of environment students, graduates, and environmental communication professionals who are really interested in how we talk about climate in this climate. Each episode, we'll dive into a different theme, looking at things like language, the media, communicating through frames and metaphors, Indigenous perspectives on environmental issues, communicating across disciplines, issues of trust and misinformation, emotion, 
and how we can ultimately strive to become more mindful listeners, communicators, and agents of change. We're so excited for this journey and so grateful that you're here traveling with us. We hope you enjoy this episode. I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands that I am calling in from today, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And I would like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and that this is stolen land. I'd like to acknowledge that storytelling and sharing knowledge is a is a traditional practice that's been happening on this land for 70,000 years, and that's what we're engaging in tonight. This is Zoe calling in today here. Um, we're consistently changing things up here at Talking in This Climate. And for episode 10, I am absolutely delighted to be recording with Blanche Burley, tonight um, and we're going to be talking about her research and her new book learning to live with climate change from anxiety to transformation so firstly from the whole team Blanche would like to thank you for taking the time out to speak with us today it's an absolute pleasure to have you here and I'd also like to let everyone know that I actually met Blanche a few years ago. I was privileged to be taught by Blanche on multiple occasions and she even mentored me through my capstone research on care and environmentalism. And now for those who haven't known Blanche for a few years. Blanche has a a rich experience in environmentalism, activism and education. She's a postdoctoral fellow at the Sydney Environment Institute and has degrees in science, social science and education and has published several journal articles exploring environmental education, emotional responses to climate change and climate justice. No, no, thank you. Thanks so much for the lovely introduction. And it's so it's so great to be here with you, specifically you, Zoe, but also with the whole team who have all been really helpful in helping me get where I am today, including in putting the book together, but specifically having been able to work and learn with you together over the years, Zoe. It's really um, awesome to have this opportunity to chat through those experiences together. So, yeah, thanks so much for the opportunity. Anytime. So when I I read your book in Melbourne's fourth lockdown, which I think was my fifth lockdown, and um, so for me, your book is just really precious to me because it was really hard going back into lockdown. But your weaving of words is so validating and tender and brings powerful insights into being climate anxious and being climate changed and negotiating that path of, um, of understanding the context in which we live. But before we jump into some juicy questions, I thought we'd have some quick little questions here, a little rapid fire round to kick us off. So Blanche, quick sticks, pronouns, what are yours? Oh, well, I go by she, her. She, her. And what country are you calling in from today? Yeah, I am calling in from the very beautiful uh, stolen and unceded country of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Mm-hmm. Um, lecturing or tutoring? Tutoring all the time. Tutoring 
lecturing to le- lecturing is like shouldn't exist. <laughs> Favorite place to connect with the environment? That is a great question and it's a tricky one, but it's probably the little hobby farm that I grew up on uh, just northeast of Bendigo on Jajawurrun country. I miss it a lot. Mm. Uh, and I guess it's just a real connection to place that I have having grown up there. And finally, Melbourne or Sydney? Um, <laughs> I've been talking about how great Melbourne is the whole time that I moved <laughs> to Sydney and I think it's been a barrier in making friends in Sydney. <laughs> so at some point I have to start saying Sydney, but I miss Melbourne a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that is that's a very fair answer. So if you could just give a little sentence or so on what the human nature binary is. So the human nature binary, or sometimes called the dualism, refers to a a pattern of thinking that's really predominant in Western philosophy and therefore the cultures that most of us live in uh, today in places like Australia that continuously produces the idea of separation between uh, separation and difference between humans and nature. So that's why we tend to think of nature as associated with wilderness where there's no people and tend to think of people often as, uh, well, of people as humans and humans as better than, more valuable than and more intelligent than nature, which they're completely disconnected from and which they can have power over. What is more than human? So more than human is a a phrase that is mainly used by researchers. Maybe one day it will be picked up by normal people. But that's trying to just refer to the fact that the world is composed of more than just humans. And it refers to, I guess, particular research approaches that focus on parts of the world that aren't just humans. But I guess in contrast to phrases like non-human, more than human sort of includes humans, but is also more than just humans. And then this is this is um, a concept that I've actually referred to a fair bit on the podcast, and I'm now finally going to be able to get the words from from you for this relational climate justice. Climate justice, typically in its most basic form, is about thinking about how the people or the parties because that might include uh, non-humans, that have contributed the least to greenhouse gas emissions tend to be those that experience the worst impacts. And so that's the injustice, the difference between who contributes the most to the problem and who experiences the worst impacts. In trying to think about climate justice in a more relational way, I was trying to think about justice for relationships between beings rather than just justice for particular beings. I haven't really managed to make that something I'm very able to articulate clearly. But, for example, it's about trying to expand the kind of unit of analysis of justice from clearly defined individual people or individual groups to a more expansive sort of perhaps thinking about ecosystems but other relationships like respiration and thinking about atmospheres and how we're all related and entangled with them we're at the finish line final question no it's good it's good keep them coming i i'm like i I don't have no i've only got one more definition this 
This is hard. Okay, climate changed. So climate changed is my way of trying to, I guess, make sense of the fact that we are entangled with climate and part of climate. So when the climate changes, it makes sense that we change as well. And so it's a way of trying to attune to how our sense of self and identity and our interpersonal relationships are influenced by climate. So I guess when I think of myself as becoming climate changed, it's reflecting on the ways that climate change is this big global uh, process around, you know, greenhouse gas emissions and fossil fuels and all these big global processes also materialise in my really everyday lived embodied experience as a person and how it's changing and influencing me or other people. Hmm. Yeah, that, I mean, it's, it's, when you look at the words, it's just, it, it's just the addition of a D, but reading about being climate changed in your book, I was like, oh my God, this is, this is what it is. It's really powerful. I read it in lockdown. It meant a lot. (laughs) Because you're sitting and you're thinking and your climate change just gave so much um, power for how I decompressed and thought about things. So, Yeah, well, that's – It's. I mean, it's really nice to hear how people might make sense of something that I've made up and maybe is not useful for people but just is for me, so that's really great. But, I mean, I feel like – Just in terms of you reading it in lockdown, I think it would be a lot easier for people to understand how their COVID changed, you know, that our Mm. whole worlds have kind of collapsed and been reconfigured and personalities. I think a lot of people are able to see how their their sense of identity of themselves has changed because of COVID. You know, a lot of us feel more introverted. I go to bed about three hours earlier. Um, (laughs) You know, all these things that have changed in my world and life because of COVID. And I guess what I'm trying to make the case for is that climate change does a similar thing, but like not at the same time as it, as COVID does for everyone. Yeah. And it's, it's less linear. Yeah. It can be like up and down all over the place, really spectacular sort of changes and then really slow changes that are hard to notice as well. Mm. I've got um, zoomed in my notes for the interview and um, I'm zoomed in on pre-TSD. <laughs> so we're talking about that. And I'm like, oh, I feel it. It's a thing. It's a, it's a real thing. And when learning about um, climate change and environmental issues, the, the emotional turbulence that we experience on that journey to being, to being climate changed or more, more or less, um, it can be really isolating and challenging, especially when terms like climate anxiety and pre-TSD and eco-anxiety and climate change now are only like now becoming part of, of common language and, and conception. So I get the question here is like you've been researching and guiding people through their own environmental and emotional journeys as well as your own for a few years now. But I guess, like, how did you come into this space and what do you seek to learn and share here? Yeah, thanks, Zoe. Great question. I guess, in a way, as a researcher, I was never looking originally to intentionally explore students' emotional experiences of learning about climate change. Uh, It's just that when I started doing that research, 
the course in the classroom was really emotional. So it seemed like it would be quite irresponsible to not pay attention to that. So that's how I guess it started. I suppose, though, that some people are more or less predisposed to be able to tune into that. So I think the fact that I was noticing that probably has something to say about the approach I'd taken to my teaching before I started the research project. Mm-hmm. And I guess being an environmental educator, often the the narrative has been that we're trying to generate concern in people about the environment and the state of it. And so I suppose... I'd had a couple of years of, of thinking that that was sort of what my role was as a, as a teacher to be trying to get people, students in this case, to understand how bad everything was. And then in that particular course where it happened to coincide with a research project, it, for whatever reason, and I think the reason is that the class was focused specifically on climate change for the whole semester, not on sustainability more broadly. Mm. It became very apparent to me that most, if not all, students were not only really concerned, they were really distressed. Uh, And so as a teacher, to be trying to just keep telling them how bad everything was, was not only not necessary, but really problematic. And so I suppose that's how it sort of started. In terms of what I'm wanting to share with people, I guess part of that shift from, from thinking that people don't get it and thinking that people need to be told how bad stuff is, I think it's important to to recognise that for some people what looks like disengagement can actually be deep distress and the distress being not knowing how to respond adequately and therefore a kind of internal, not self-loathing, but disappointment and disempowerment. And so that can, like someone who genuinely is not interested and not concerned can appear the same as someone who's really distressed but just doesn't know how to deal with it. So being better able to, to check out and, and make sense of who's feeling what and where different people are at is really crucial to making sure that for those people who are already really distressed that we're supporting them rather than um, traumatising them. Definitely. And having having gone through that course as well, like that focus on climate change for a semester straight, you could see um, how we ebbed in and out from that sort of like a capable level of concern into that distressed state and how we would engage with each other throughout the semester as the students in the course. I, on reflecting now, I'm like, I can see that veering in and out of that distressed state when we engage and disengage. Yeah. And I think, I guess one thing that, and I'm, I'm never really sure how to approach this, but I think there's also, like, there's potential in that distress that is constructive as well. There are good reasons why we're distressed. And it's an appropriate and healthy response. Uh, the question is, is how do we manage and deal with that and how do we respond to it? And I think leaning into the, the causes behind all of that distress 
and, and working out what they are and tracing them back to, I guess, what I think are the causes, which is extractive capitalism and, you know, the whole fossil fuel sort of colonial empire behind it, I think can help us tune into the causes of, of that distress and also help us ensure that our responses to that distress aren't so driven by a sense of urgency and unexamined anxiety that we end up perpetuating the problem. So I think there's a real risk that the, I, I think a lot of people that don't realise are really deeply distressed about climate change, perhaps for different reasons. But if they can't recognise that, a lot of the responses that we hear are really authoritarian or supremely anthropocentric, like a lot of the geoengineering stuff, um, a lot of the kind of, you know, rhetoric around needing to suspend democracy because we need emissions reductions at all costs and those kinds of things. The sort of quick quick fixes that are really not fixing anything at all but, but seem to be something that people can latch onto as an immediate action. I think they're driven by a lot of anxiety that's not examined and really just like outsource the emotional distress and reflection that's required onto to people who are uh, less responsible hmm. and already experiencing the other burdens of climate change more intensely as well. So, yeah, I think there's, I think it's really important that we're all reflecting on how we feel about climate change and and the kind of politics behind that, so that we can respond in more just ways. Definitely. And it's that reflective process. It's difficult. Like it's uncomfortable to sit and understand where and why you're feeling a particular way around this very grand experience of climate change. And it, it can be so overwhelming and consuming. And I guess like as an environmental educator and um, like a, like a, a, a you're going to laugh when I say this and I know, but as like, how do you say this? I'm like, as a leader of thought, that's not the right way to say <laughs> it, is it? <laughs> sure. I'll take it. <laughs> in this space, <laughs> as a leader of thought in this space, how do you, negotiate like your your own journey of that because that reflection like you can't just do it at point a and it's done like it's a continuous thing and so I guess yeah as an environment educator and and a thought leader how do you negotiate guiding like students and peers through that journey simultaneously as yourself when particularly like in teaching like climate change responses and throughout um, environment studies like a lot of the fears and concerns that students would be bringing to you are the same as as your own like how do you negotiate that space or can you like is it is it possible yeah 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 it's a great question and you're absolutely right that it's a it's a journey and a process and not something that we tick off once and like oh cool I've just you know sorted out my climate anxiety that's done now how, yeah and how to do it as a, a you know a teacher or perhaps anyone who has a role of sort of supporting others 
um, it is really difficult because, you know, there is there is a risk that you can, I guess, project your own worries onto others and perhaps perceive those feelings when they're not really there. Um, I think personally, I think that's less of a risk than pretending that people aren't distressed. I think the real issue is ignoring it or pretending that learning how to, I guess as I phrase it, like learning to live with climate change, Mm -hmm. assuming that that's a skill set that people will somehow magically already have or that will just kind of magically be taught through like some kind of absorption of something, I don't know, presuming that that's going to happen instead of trying to explicitly teach it, I think that's a real, like that's that's the real problem. And I guess they have seen people in positions where they're, like where their experience is centred, whether they're, you know, teaching or giving a public talk or, or whatever, who are really like hyper anxious in the moment. And I think that can be quite problematic as well if you're trying to kind of compel an anxious response in others you do have to have like some kind of ability to to be managing your own response and working out when you're there to serve others rather than to be getting into all your own shit so there is some kind of duty of care and and having to articulate those boundaries but at the same time I think pretending that you're immune from these feelings and that it's just, you know, the people that you're supporting make, makes it seem like there's a way out or that you've kind of ticked off the process or somehow that you're better or stronger than them. So I think that's problematic as well. I guess the way that I try to approach it is sort of sharing my vulnerability and the, you know, the feelings that I have without um, engaging them at that time, if that makes sense. So I might say, you know, climate change, you know, it makes me really distressed and it makes me anxious and it makes me really struggle to envisage what my life's going to be like in the future. I really struggle on how to uh, make decisions around planning for the future, but try not to be the one who's having (laughs) a panic attack in class as as best as I can. you know, but also acknowledging that sometimes I'm really shaken up to. You did and you do an amazing job of that and bringing that vulnerability into how we talk about these issues that can feel so separate and can feel so far away but simultaneously right there with us. I feel that bringing that that vulnerability in provides the opportunity for us to actually do that active reflection and become more comfortable with talking about how difficult it is to not only understand that this is where we're at, but this is like, as you said, the context in which we need to make decisions and live our lives. Like learning from, from you has given me great sort of stead trying to come to terms with (laughs) the world (laughs) our existence it's it's important that we yeah accept our vulnerability yeah and I think I mean you're right that the words are hard to find because I think we don't we don't really have the vocabulary we need to to talk about this because 
the language we have from, you know, disciplines that are useful like psychology uh, is not really quite translatable to the sort of scale of the, the challenges that we're facing. And, you know, I'm not a psychologist and I haven't ever been to therapy much. <laughs> so I don't want to like diss that discipline. <laughs> you know, I think they do a lot of fabulous work and I've learned a lot from psychologists in this space. But I think there is, and this is a, this is a really big generalization, but there is a bit of, I think, a tendency in um, the sort of therapeutic practices that with enough therapy over time, we can manage most problems generally. I know there will be, you know, I guess particular cases where where that's not true, uh, but climate change is absolutely one where it's not only that we can't tick it off once and be like, that's done. Like part of the reason for that is that the problem is continuing to get worse. And so it's not something where time will heal all wounds kind of thing. Uh, we're going to have to keep improving our capacities and increasing, you know, our ability to engage with the challenges. Um, and, you know, I think there'll be limits to that as well. There's only so much that we can talk and reflect about our feelings um, about it when, you know, like there, there's going to be for all of us all around the world in different places and different times and in different ways, things that we're not able to face up to or live with or, you know, adapt to or whatever. So, you know, we can we can do our best and we can do better, but, um, you know, the sad truth is that that's, we're not going to just be able to talk about our feelings and, and get our way out of, out of the, you know, existential crisis really. Mm, definitely. And I, that, that tension of wanting, wanting the perfect solution, like wanting that, that silver bullet now to fix everything has been something that I've been working on the past few years and acknowledging that we are cultivating these stepping stones to addressing the issues that we, that, and the challenges that we face, like, and particularly in climate, with, with climate um, and being okay with the learning process and that we're not going to wake up like tomorrow <laughs> and be like, oh, we solved it, all done, happy days, hunky-dory. Like it's, it's this big process and I, I think that that's what makes sitting in the uncomfortability so uncomfortable because it's not a yoga pose that you're holding or like, you know, lifting weights for, you know, doing whatever, how long your set is. You've got to sit with it for your lifetime and for the future generations of all of the species on the planet. And it's, it's so tricky to sit with that, but you're, I'm like, your book did it so well. Like, how do you, how do you, do you sit, sit with these, these uncomfortabilities or like, how do you find a, a way to sit in that space and thinking about past, present and future simultaneously with, with that uncomfortability? Like, yeah, look, it's really hard. And I think, you know, the honest truth is like, sometimes I'm just checking out of it. Mm. Like it, you know, for everyone, I guess it comes in spurts and then filters out. Like, you know, during the, the black summer mm. fires, 
which, you know, went for heaps longer than a summer. Um, I was like, I was beside myself. I couldn't, I couldn't think about anything other than those bushfires for that, Mm. you know, whole period. And felt like, I remember having nightmares about like fleeing from fires. And then I would wake up and be like, fuck, I just want to go back to sleep because that was better. Like it's actually happened. It's not just a dream. Mm. Um, But now, you know, having been kind of working from home in COVID in a time where in Australia, in my experience where I've been, there haven't been any local sort of climatic crises affecting me that much lately and also having a life where I'm not really engaged with other people very much anymore, partly because I don't have a teaching job, but I also move cities, so I'm not really engaged with the community here. Because of COVID, I didn't make those connections. So I'm not having those conversations with other people where they're like, oh, yeah, and did you hear that? And, Mm -hmm. oh, and I'm really distressed about this. So these days I actually feel a lot calmer about it, but I know that that's just um, a coping mechanism and that I'm I'm tuning out of it and I'm just trying to get through, you know, this this round of COVID lockdown and, and not kind of panic about the next big thing. Um, But, yeah, in terms of the discomfort, I think part of what makes it so uncomfortable is the the combination of, like, guilt and, like, the complicity and the vulnerability to me. Like, for those of us who are, you know, privileged enough to live in um, places that are really, you know, the the centre of the problem, um, and, you know, we have a really nice life because, you know, I've got the heater on and blah, blah, whatever. So feeling guilty about that, which is appropriate, <laughs> maybe not productive, but I think also like there is a role, like people are really critical of guilt, but I think there's a role in it, which it helps, it helps us articulate who's responsible. And I think dwelling with the guilt and the sense of complicity for harming others both around the world and in the future but also creating conditions that are harming ourselves I think that makes it really um, uncomfortable and because it is not it's not an issue of individual choice you know it's structural conditions in the the form of economic structures and also cultural patterns around our sense of entitlement to particular ways of being that makes it not something we can approach or fix individually. And so I guess, you know, for me that brings it back to why we need to talk this through together because our feelings are similar because they're culturally and economically structured. So although we experience them individually, they're created through similar conditions and and that's why they are often quite similar. So if we want to really tackle those those conditions that, that are creating the feelings and we need to be exploring it mm. together. And I guess that's how I try to approach that discomfort is, is not to dwell in the individual guilt so much, uh, but to try to, um, you know, approach it with, with friends and, and community and to try to come up with some kinds of collective responses with the the COVID of it all and harnessing these shared like experiences of 
of of emotion have you have you seen or do you think that collective responses like have have changed or how people sit with their emotions or share their emotions around climate has changed or yeah that's a really good question I want to say yes but I don't think I have not not because of COVID directly when when COVID was like first a thing I think there was a lot of climate people who were like, oh, you know, maybe people having to work at home, be in lockdown, slowing down the pace of life will give everyone a chance to reflect on what's important and maybe, you know, think about climate change. <laughs> um, and maybe we'll have a, you know, just green recovery. <laughs> a year or so later than that, I think that might be true for some people, but it's certainly not something that's happened systematically or at an institutional level. But at the same time, I think the awareness around the emotion that climate change generates is definitely increasing. There's a lot of information and a lot of discussion about it out there now, and I think that's great. And potentially there is a sense in which people have. Um, you know, through COVID, having experienced, I guess, a, a shared trauma, you know, all our experiences of COVID are different to each other, but but the, the sort of cause of, of those different experiences is the same. And for most of us, it's been mainly a painful experience. I know there's been some benefits for some people, but I think a lot of us have learned to talk about our feelings more, mm. um, having to you know, connect with people over the internet in ways that are mainly talking-based rather than playing sport with our friends or, um, you know, doing an activity where we don't actually have to actually engage with who we are as people and our <laughs> deep thoughts about the world. Yes. So I think I think that potentially those, like, coming together, like the, the increasing discussion about climate anxiety and hopefully people having been forced generally to to live a more internal focused life like maybe that will come together in um yeah more more discussion about climate emotions Mm. yeah I do remember because that was the big when COVID was kicking off was the beginning of my thesis and there was so much around comparing the two and utilizing it is this sort of this opportunity and this amazing analogy and that's fallen off the bandwagon with the the green just regeneration but no none of that not yet yeah yeah there was a lot of that discussion and I guess you know there's been a lot of um like having written a book called learning to live with climate change and then all those discussions around how we just need to like live with the virus, which just means like mm-hmm. let people die. Yeah. Presuming they're not me. Has really made me question that choice of title for the book. <laughs> <laughs> but also <laughs> be like, no, you're using that phrase wrong. Like learning to live with something is not about giving in and giving it free reign. And it's not about abandoning other people. <laughs> you know, it's about like it's about respect for the world that is beyond your control but stepping up to to find you know ethical and enjoyable ways to live in that world that isn't controllable and yet 
you don't just let walk all over you. So, yeah, I guess that's something that I've been thinking about but never managed to really, um, I don't know, write or articulate. But it's, you know, popped up in Sydney again recently. So you've you've just articulated it beautifully. So Yeah, I need to write to whoever that health minister was. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember which one. It's not about leaving people behind and it's about understanding where we're at and not I love the the not giving in. Like, yes. Motivational speech. Yeah. <laughs> I um I got this like tank top at a clothes swap a little while ago. Yeah. And on the front it says flaming future and on the back it says be yourself and leave no one behind. And I feel like it just full, like fully encapsulates everything. I think like the future is going to be on fire, but also like stop like faking it and, you know, look after people. Yes. Yes. I love that. We need more t-shirts. Like. <laughs> we need more people to live by the motto on the t-shirt and then we can get yeah. t-shirts. <laughs> um. I did want to circle back to like a few whiles ago to when, so you were talking about how now not being like not, not teaching and not being around everyone who's also talking about climate change and what's distressing them has provided sort of like some more space and respite. And cause I know I've had the same experience um, now, like not studying it and, in day in day out and being in you know like only things that are centered around climate change and I do feel that it's given me that like the space has given me more clarity to see I guess where I fit in things and to take less of it on and to be more particular with how I engage that's akin to my like to, to my skill set. And so like the, for me, that's like focusing on disability inclusion. And yeah, I'm wondering like for you, what, what that space has, has provided for you or given, given way for. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I think that's a really interesting reflection, Zoe. And I think it's an important one that, you know, I think there's a lot of, I guess, constructive like cultural and personal work that can be done through being in that kind of heightened state of panic Mm. but that's unbearable long term Mm. like we just cannot we cannot live like that and we won't like even as disasters compound and we might have a whole lot of um, background stress on like people find ways to keep going and to not make disasters you know every moment of their waking thought because we just can't do that in a way that doesn't destroy ourselves so I think it is really important that particularly if we're not in that position where we're personally living in disaster zones if if we're more you know at the moment having the experience of like seeing that on the news and being concerned about that but actually having space in our immediate lives to kind of think about that, reflect on it, but also to not take on the entirety of the problem in a way that becomes 
so disabling that we can't do anything. I think that's important. Mm. And so, yeah, exactly. I guess one thing I've always wanted to be able to do with students is to help them find like their unique way of contributing that is both like meaningful and rewarding for them that they're, you know, uniquely placed to be good at and to make a contribution through that and, you know, to focus on doing doing that and doing that well rather than, you know, trying to solve all the problems all at once because none of us can do that. Mm, definitely. And, yeah, sometimes that means taking a break or regulating how much we engage with um, certain groups of people or certain forms of information. So, you know, a lot of people who are really engaged with climate will be, you know, like their social media feeds will just have always been doom scrolling. Mm. Like that's my case. That's only a recent term, but I've been doing that for like a decade. <laughs> so I just don't use social media anymore, really. Mm. Like, and I lose a bit through that as well. But whenever I log on and it's just trauma after trauma, um, it's just not really very useful for me. Mm. And so... Yeah, I I guess I feel like in terms of where I'm at at the moment, you know, I've had the good fortune of having had the task of writing a book during a year in which everyone was working from home and a really individual task was um, really quite great to have during that time. It would have been awful if I'd written the book the year before being stuck at home all by myself and then COVID hit. (laughs) So I feel really grateful for that overlap in timing and, um, yeah, I guess now I'm hoping that I have can, can find some ways to do some things more with um, community as I've had a bit of that rest and respite mm. now and I feel kind of ready to go again. Um, but I do think that, yeah, checking out of that intensity for a bit um, has been really good for me and, you know, that – it's important, I guess, for people to realise when, you know, you need to take a break or take a rest or, or switch out so that you can play the long game. Like climate change is really urgent, but it's also it's not going anywhere and it's not going to be fixed quickly. So, you know, it's it's definitely the marathon, not the sprint. And so, you know, working out how to sustain ourselves over the long term is is really important. And if that means that you have to take a break at some point like that's so valid Mm. I want everyone to take note of the timestamp of when Blanche just told you it's okay to take a break there is your permission (laughs) it's it's so important though and I guess throughout this whole conversation I think something that's really resonated for me is that none of this is is static and our experiences and climate and everything is is this on this like constant momentum, the the sentiment that in which you get or understand things is it, it changes so frequently. So having those times out or those check ins to understand how you can be like of of constructive benefit is is really useful. And I love that um, sentiment you said before, like how you really want to help people find how they can be like productive in this in this space and where they 
can yeah can use their skills to to be moving towards a more equitable future but even that like everything it, it does change and it is iterative and um I think that's also, that's it's just so important that it's not static it's continuous you're right that it is important to recognize but it, it's also the fact that everything keeps moving means you can't rest on your laurels either right like the the context you know every year on climate change is different and that's something that Lauren Rickards and I used to talk about in in terms of teaching that course on climate change was you know our resentment like maths professors who surely rolled out the same lectures every year on Pythagoras or whatever um (laughs) I'm sure I'm sure there's also advances in mathematics too but um but, you know, from year to year, like, there's a new international agreement, there's a new IPCC report, there's all these new disasters that have happened that, you know, illuminate new points, like, the carbon emissions have increased, like, every year it was new. And so the context that we were teaching in, both ecologically, politically, but also in terms of the emotional context that we were teaching in was always changing. And so... That's one thing that made that really hard. And it does mean that, you know, wherever people are at in terms of their engagement with climate change, is it, it's always on the move. And so it's hard to sort of feel like you've really ever met the requirements for being good at it. But I think one of the reasons I like working on climate change or engaging with it is that you're always learning and that is kind of a rewarding process in itself. Like it's always interesting if you can detach from the, the apocalyptic side of things. Intellectually, it's a really interesting phenomenon, right? Like it forces you to think so differently about the world in terms of, you know, like the complexity of the planetary system, the, you know, the complexities of human psychology how all of this fits together. Like I'm always learning stuff Mm. about climate change and that is fun, even if it is also always distressing. (laughs) I love how candid that was. (laughs) Like it's fun. It's so distressing. But it, it, it is. And the realms of possibility, like climate change has completely thrown what we thought was possible out the window out of gravity (laughs) (laughs) so funny how much we're laughing about this I know it's kind of terrifying it's a coping mechanism but I think I think that's something as well I'm always hysterical oh I know (laughs) you know me it's (laughs) terrible I'm always always giggling but I do think it is it is a coping mechanism what else are you going to do when you when you talk about it? And it, I find I find it at least like it is grounding <laughs> to to be able to laugh about because it, it does it brings it brings you back from the spiral, and spiraling isn't help. It, it, that's not helpful if you're wanting to be productive or to mm, care for yourself yeah. either. And it's yeah. So that brings back to that the first um, things that you were talking about, like how that disengagement or like how people cope with their climate anxiety. It can look really weird how we all muddle our way through this. Yeah, totally. I feel like I'm often hysterical and people expect me to be talking about something 
in a really formal, like grave voice and I just like feel like the only way I can speak is in this like supremely high-pitched, like, you know, maniacal laugh because that's too intense. <laughs> but I mean, having, I'm like, I've, I've been in lectures and presentations and classrooms with you and it makes it personable. Like it works. If it was given in a grave tone, it's like, oh no. Like if I'm, I'm thinking of, here's, a, here's a, a common grave, loud, booming voice. If Dumbledore <laughs> was giving you yeah. <laughs> this information, it would be really hard and intimidating. And the facts and the context is, is intimidating enough. And so the, the relatability and the, the messages being delivered in a, in a grounding fashion is, for me, that really works at least and is really important for how I absorb information, like in the educational setting particularly. Mm, yeah, that's really interesting. I'd love to um, – I have this dream of like becoming a stand-up comedian except that I'm not at all funny and it's terrifying. But um, I think there's so much potential for like – I don't know, at least maybe not humour directly, but like the skills that stand-up comedians have to like engage people and, you know, like the comic relief after Mm -hmm. the tension is built to like help people engage and like breathe and get through it. I think there's so much potential in that. So, yeah, anyway, that's That's another skill for another day. (laughs) It's a craft. You'll you'll hone it. I'm excited for Blanche's stand up tour when we're able to do like in person. It'd be so dark. <laughs> It'd be really good. People would love it though. I have been to the. I have been to comedy. That's like because there was one when it was called the Anthropocene. It was I. I it was all right, but there, mm. this is already happening. There's already comedy about about these issues. You can. We can we can find it. We can we can go on tour. Yeah, That's we should what support we should them. Do. Yeah, as you know, and as the listeners hopefully know, this um this podcast series is focused on like un- unpacking the impacts and strategies of how we talk about climate change. And I was wondering if you know you've talked about it for a, for a while now, many years. You've written books. You've studied it many times. Presented it so much. Any takeaways? How how have you found effective ways to talk about to talk about climate, and in like in different settings as well? Because there is no one way. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. I think um, you know some of the like golden rules of communications is like know your audience and speak to them. You know, a lot of the climate communication stuff emphasizes that you know having the right messenger that people identify with is important you know, like we've spoken about being relatable Mm. Um, and then, you know, framing it to align with people's values and that kind of thing. I guess as someone who's coming from it with the, like, practical profession of being a teacher and the kind of community engagement I've done, which has also been around being a facilitator, for me, like climate communications is just about just as much about listening and asking questions as it is about framing a message. And so that makes it, uh, I guess, quite different to the kinds of communications that's about messaging. Mm. Uh, but I, I do wonder how much there is 
scope for, I guess, programs or, or institutions where mainly they're sending out a one-way message to audiences. Like what capacity is there to stop kind of trying to force it to be interpreted a certain way and to actually ask people questions and get them to reflect on it for themselves? I think that the climate communications literature is so dominated around how we need to kind of manipulate the message to push people to to respond in a certain way. But when you think about the kinds of research that those sorts of studies are based on, it's usually around like, you know, you get two groups of people, you give one of them a kind of doomsday message and the other a kind of hopeful message and, and, and then ask them, you know, how likely are you to ride your bike instead of driving and that kind of thing. But I guess as a, as a teacher who works with people over time and having the ability to look at how, you know, we don't live our lives as though we've just been shown a climate message and one only. We live our lives with all of those messages bombarding ourselves and if we don't take the time to process them and make sense of them, then, then none of them are really landing anyway. So I think my takeaway is like the more that we can make time and space and community for people to actually explore for themselves rather than being told what to think or manipulated how to feel, I think that's really crucial because even if your message is great and if that was what influenced people then they're just vulnerable to the next person with more money that's probably got vested interest in fossil fuels to listen to their message, you know. So, like, we need to be giving people the skills to critically engage with their own experience and make sense of it and respond to it. So, yeah, I guess my takeaways are, like, ask questions and listen Mm -hmm. more than you talk. Mm. That is something I need to be reminded of every day. (laughs) (laughs) I think we all do right like when you're really passionate about something just want people to know yeah but you know I think it's far more effective if we can ask people hey what do you think how do you feel and then make the connections with how they're experiencing it to the similarities Mm. we have rather than being like hey do you know how anxious I am about climate change I'm so stressed out like let me tell you how stressful it is aren't you stressed Mm. (laughs) like it's not a basis for a conversation no no and having a conversation and the communication being reciprocal it also allows for the development of knowledge and strategies as well because if you are just receiving that single message where's the growth in this changing setting yeah and that's the same exactly so spot on zoe like even for the people making the messages, right? Like to think that we know the answer of how people should feel mm. presumes that we've already got climate change figured out ourselves and we don't. So, you know, some people have more knowledge than others, but everyone has valid knowledge and and um, a really important role to play and none of us have it all figured out. So I think we all need to be trying to learn from each other. Definitely. I think that is a wonderful sentiment to to close out this conversation on. <laughs> it's been bloody lovely. We need to um, 
do this again. Thank you so much for joining us tonight to help guide us and our listeners to bear worlds with climate change. We appreciate your your time, care and vulnerability in sharing your magic words in this mayhem. Oh, I just want to say thanks again, Zoe. It's been so fabulous to have the opportunity to chat with you about this and it feels like a really unique opportunity and you've asked really fabulous questions. <laughs> And um, I really appreciate, you know, yeah, being able to chat through someone who's also taught me so much over the years, you know, like a lot of what I've learned um, about all of this stuff comes from your really fabulous work at RMIT, you know, both implementing and also researching students' experiences as well. So, yeah, thanks to you and all the work you've done. To get Blanche's book, Learning to Live with Climate Change from Anxiety to Transformation, go to www.learningtolivewithclimatechange.org and there's a link to the book there. Well, thank you. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you. This has been amazing. This podcast has been created and produced by Tim, Emily, Fani, Ewan, Zoe and Rosie with support from the Climactic Collective. This podcast has been made for educational purposes only and any advice and information presented is general in nature and does not consider your specific circumstances. The views, thoughts and opinions expressed by individuals do not reflect the views of a climactic collective. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating as it helps others find us. If you're looking for more podcasts on similar topics, make sure to visit the Climactic Collective website. Thanks for listening. The Climactic Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H E R E media.studio.